I'd have you this morning, if you would please, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's a few on the tables there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you'd find verse 17. And we'll make a start in this text this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Don't let that waft of nice food coming from the kitchen distract you like it just did to me. That should ensure we have a short message this morning. (laughs) 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Follow along if you would as I read. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This would have to be one of the grandest passages in the entire scripture. I come here so often. We are continuing this morning in our communion series, which we entitled several months ago, A Glossary of Glorious Terms. We've already looked at the word atonement two months ago. Last month, we looked at the word election. And today, we're going to examine the term imputation. Imputation. I already gave you the full introduction before uh, my job in sales Uh, enabled me to to write a a selling skills program that included these fab features, advantages and benefits. We did our group exercise. And this morning, I'm going to use that very concept, feature, advantage and benefit, as we look at this particular doctrine, the doctrine of imputation. I want to say at the very forefront, this is considered very controversial to many, but I think it is essential to the truth of the gospel. So join me this morning as I preach a glossary of glorious terms, part three, imputation. Lord, we thank you so much for the time we've already had together in fellowship. Uh, Lord, for the fun we can have together as we study and the joy it is to be able to do that. Thank you for a group exercise we could do this morning. Thank you for the songs we've sung, the power of the cross. Years I spent in vanity and pride. Caring not, my Lord was crucified. Knowing not, it was for me he died at Calvary. As we sung that second song. Thank you for these preambles to what we're to look at now. Help us, we pray, for these next few moments together in your word to see truth perhaps like we haven't before. Illuminate us to this grand, grand subject, we pray. Give us a greater awe for the gospel that you put into to uh, to plan and, and made a reality uh, we just thank you so much for it prepare our hearts for a time where we will partake and remember all that jesus has done amen 
features and advantages of imputation. Point one, I'm combining the two, the features and advantages of imputation. Now, this word imputation, I'm going to explain it in a minute, but let me just say to you at the forefront, this is a grand, grand theme, a jewel in the overall overall jewel of the gospel. So we ask this question in this first point. What is it? What does it do? Important questions. So here's some history for us. The word imputation came into existence in the English language in the 1540s. And it literally means to charge. It is an account. It is attributing or ascribing. That's what it means. It is both a legal and accounting term. Legal and an accounting term. To charge, to impute, to an account, to attribute, to credit. It is mostly used in historical documentation in relationship to the administration of justice. This is a legal term, primarily imputation. So if we were to look in historical books and look at this word imputation, we would find that it is very often used to describe a sentence or an accusation in the court of law. When the judge says, this court finds you guilty as charged... The, le- the criminal is legally culpable, formally prosecuted, and responsible to pay the penalty in full. That's what we mean by imputation. The judge has taken the gavel and has said guilty and imputed what accusation has been made against that individual and has said that is true accusation and we place it on that person. It is the imputation. It is justice. This word imputation, though, has an even richer meaning when it comes to the realm of theology, the study of God, redemptive history. So we want to ask the question, how does the term imputation function in the realm of theology? What does it look like? What does it mean? This, This word that is an unusual word, we don't use it much today. How does it function in the realm of theology? Now, first of all, you need to note, in our translation that we use here, the ESV, the word imputation does not appear. But the concept is throughout the Scripture. The concept is throughout the Scripture. So I'm not going to turn to a verse that's going to say, Jesus became our imputed righteousness. It doesn't say imputation or imputed in our ESV translation. King James uses it on a number of occasions, and it's a critical word. Critical word for us to understand this word, imputation. There's three ways that the doctrine of imputation is seen in the scriptures. Three ways. And these are uh, incredible. These are deep, and we're going to spend just a very short amount of time on them. The threefold use of the term, number one in the Bible, imputation as it relates to what is called original sin. Now, this is something that many people don't agree with, uh, but I believe it is very much a biblical teaching, and I believe the scripture is clear on it. Here is what we mean by this when we come to original sin. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, the result we know was death to them and their descendants. The seed of Adam throughout all the generations 
death passed upon all because of a decision to disobey God. In other words, all that are born of Adam, humans, are sinners by nature and spiritually dead. Some would have us believe that we are not born sinners, but that we sin. I don't believe that's true. I believe that literally in every sense we are depraved in every category of our human nature. And even before we come into this world in our mother's womb, we are already sinful. We are sinners by nature, not just by actions. The question has to be asked to those who would say that we are only sinners by what we do. How is it that nobody has ever been able to come out of the womb perfect and remain perfect apart from Jesus Christ? How is that possible? And therefore, if death has passed upon all men, why must all men die if some are born perfect? The reality of it is death has passed upon all and all are sinners by nature. We're going to look at a couple of texts to help us understand this. But John Calvin, a historical theologian, writes this, and only he could put it like this. And some of these words are big words. He says, original sin. This is the concept that Adam sinned and therefore all of his descendants are sinners by nature. That's the concept. Original sin is seen to be a hereditary depravity. And a corruption of our nature diffused into all parts of the soul. For our nature is not merely bereft of good, but it is so productive of every kind of evil that it cannot be inactive. Whatever is in man from intellect to will, from the soul to the flesh, is all defiled and crammed with concupiscence or To sum it up briefly, that the whole of man is in himself nothing but concupiscence. Now, you might want to take a dictionary and look up some of those individual words, perhaps listen to the message again and look up what concupiscence means and so forth. But what he is basically saying is that every part of our character is soiled by sin. We are not necessarily as bad as we could be, but every aspect of our will, mind, intellect, soul, etc. is soiled by sin. Original sin is hereditary and the corruption of our nature. I'd have you turn, if you would, please. We're going to quickly look at some texts here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, we're looking at this matter of original sin as it is imputed to all of mankind because of Adam and Eve's disobedience there in the Garden of Eden. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you find verse 21, let me just give you a couple of verses here. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is an exciting portion of scripture. Because you know what? We look at the natural and we say, in Adam all are dead. But then the Bible talks about a second Adam. A wonderful Adam in whom all who trust in that second Adam, that being Jesus Christ, will live. But all, all in Adam die, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. Romans 5.12, if you're you're quick enough, let's just quickly turn there. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul again says, Therefore, 
just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. It is clear that through one man's sin, all are considered dead. In fact, to further that point, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, which some of you already mentioned in your group exercise, Ephesians chapter 2. Just building a little bit of a case here before we move on to our second aspect here. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul makes it very clear, in case you were wondering, he says, and you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice the words children of wrath. By nature... By nature, our natural estate is a sinner. Long before we ever did anything wrong, we were already a sinner. We were already under condemnation. That helps us. We need to understand that. We're going to look at the benefit of knowing that truth in just a little while. But we need to understand that because all of us, every single one of us here this morning, were dead before Christ. Spiritually dead. There wasn't a spark of life. We were dead. The Bible makes that clear. And by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so we see that the first usage of this term imputation relates to us all imputed with Adam's sin. Every one of us. None escapes that reality. Second usage is as it relates to the atonement. That word atonement. Okay, so again, I hope I'm I'm not being too complicated for us this morning. Imputation, so we're talking about imputation being that which is an account, that which uh, relates to everybody, imputed sinfulness from Adam to everyone. Now we're talking about imputation as it relates to the atonement or the death of Jesus Christ. This is what we're talking about here. This second aspect of imputation, which we are most familiar with, relates to the sins of the elect, the chosen being imputed or applied to Jesus Christ. In other words, we say Christ died for our sins. My sin, your sin, as a chosen individual by God, was imputed to Jesus Christ on the cross as our substitute. All that will believe in him, all of their sin was placed upon the Son of God. That's our text, 2 Corinthians 5. For he has made him to be sin for us. This is a legal transaction. The man is innocent, Jesus Christ. He is perfect. He is there and on judgment in the courtroom of heaven. And he says, I take their sin. I am not guilty, Jesus says. I am pure. I am perfect. I am innocent. But I will take those whom God the Father has chosen to be his own. I will take all of their sins upon myself and become the substitute for them. That is imputation of Adam's sin in the chosen elect of God upon the Son of God. This is an incredible doctrine. 
You see, we're all guilty, point one, in Adam. But in point two, the imputation of our sin as God's chosen people was credited to Christ. That is an amazing thing. The children said so wonderfully before, we didn't have to die. That's the truth. We didn't have to pay. And you say, well, what kind of payment had to be made? Eternity. Eternity was the payment. Eternal death. That was the payment demanded by a righteous and just God who says, I will not take sin. Sin is not part of my character. Nobody will come to me unless they are perfect. We read in the scriptures, the Lord Jesus says, you have to be holy like the Father's holy. So how can I be holy? The answer is you can't be unless someone who is holy takes your place. It's the only way you have an entrance into the throne room of heaven. I love what the songwriter John Moore wrote. All my iniquities on him were laid. He nailed them all to the tree. Jesus, the debt of my sin fully paid. He paid the ransom for me. Have a look with me, please, in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, if you'll find verse 4. Isaiah 53, speaking of the suffering servant fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Isaiah, by inspiration, Spirit of God prophesying in advance, says this of Jesus in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is mind-blowing. This is beyond our comprehension that his wounds, his blood, his sacrifice would bring about our perfection, our righteousness before the Father. If you're able, quickly turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. These are verses I'm sure very familiar to all of us, but we need to be reminded of these all the time. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Paul again. Galatians 3.13 writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For us. That passage we read already for 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him to be sin. In other words, God has made Christ to be sin. We're not saying that Christ sinned. We're saying that Christ took sin. God made him the substitute for sin so that we, the sinner, might become the righteousness of God in him. This ought to cause us to fall to our knees. This ought to cause us this morning in reverential fear to say, how is it possible, O God, this incredible gospel message that has produced within me the righteousness of Christ that is credited to my account where all I had was debt, debt, debt. And instead of the debt, you credited to my account the full righteousness of Jesus Christ. You took my sin. That's amazing. That is an incredible truth about the atonement. And clearly I can't separate them because that was the third one that I was about to tell you about. The atonement is that reality that my sin is imputed to him. But thirdly, we see imputation in the realm of justification. So let me explain once again. Imputation, original sin, 
in Adam, every one of us is a sinner by nature. In Christ and the atonement, our sin is credited to the account of Christ. He becomes sin for us. And then thirdly, in the realm of justification, which means to be declared righteous. This is a legal term again. This is in the court of heaven where we talk about justification. Someone is declared righteous. So the second part says, my sin on him. But the third part says, his righteousness given to me. This is what we call double imputation. My sin over there, his righteousness given to me. And I want to spend too much time on justification because next month our key word is justification. So I want to leave some mystery in the air for you to come back to next time. But it means to be declared righteous. It means that the righteousness of Jesus Christ, in other words, everything good about him, which is everything, is credited to me. What a transaction. What an incredible truth. I can never, ever, ever be declared guilty again. Now, that doesn't mean I don't sin. Please don't get this wrong. We're not saying suddenly the righteousness of Christ is is imputed to me. Therefore, I am now perfectly sinless in every sense. That's not true. But positionally before God the Father, I can never be seen or understood or declared to be guilty ever again. gives me entrance into the family of God. It gives me personal, perpetual entrance into the throne room of heaven before the Father. Wow. So that I don't any longer have to bring a goat or a lamb to the high priest who would then slit its throat and spread that blood. Now I literally in an instant right now can be talking To my heavenly father, because I am clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him to be sin for us. Second aspect. That we might be made the righteousness. Third aspect. Justification of God in him. Philippians chapter 3, please. One day we're going to get to Philippians chapter 3. In our study of Philippians. I'm really looking forward to it, actually. Philippians chapter 3 is a wonderful chapter. I'm pretty sure it'll take three or four years. Philippians chapter 3. If you look at verse 8 with me, please. Paul says, Philippians 3 and verse 8, I, I count as loss, verse, end of verse 7, for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Wow, what a phrase. I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now notice verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. By the way, that's how Paul lived before. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's what Paul says. Paul says that I might be found in him. Not with a righteousness that has been my own attaining of keeping the law and and the traditions of man, etc. Which is what I used to do, Paul says in brackets, if you like. I used to do all of this stuff. That's not how... This comes by faith in Jesus Christ. This is the righteousness that is imputed to me. That comes by faith. 
Isaiah 53 and verse 11. Let me quickly turn there. You don't necessarily need to. Just to give you another passage that talks about this righteousness being imputed to us. Isaiah 53 and verse 11. Again, speaking of the Lord Jesus, Isaiah says, Out of the anguish of his soul, the Lord Jesus, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. The point of this message that Isaiah says here is that my righteous servant is going to come. He's going to take the iniquities of these people, but he is going to account a reckoning. He's going to account to them righteousness. 600 years before the Lord Jesus ever comes to the earth. Amazing. Turn with me to one more passage, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Hope you're keeping up because we're about to get to... This is exciting, but it gets even better in just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. I love this verse. I've highlighted it twice. Two different colours in my Bible here. Verse 30 says, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus righteousness excuse me, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Let me read that again. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Just park there for the rest of the day. All of those things is what the Lord Jesus became for us. And one of those key words, righteousness. You say, what does that mean? That means that he became for us. When he came, when he came incarnate as God in the flesh, he became for us our righteousness. He's the means of a right standing with God. So, again, just to cover this well so we know when we walk out of here what we're talking about, imputation, original sin. Every single person is imputed with Adam's sin. The guilt, the penalty, death is a part of nature now. Part of everything. Those whom God has chosen, election. He provided a means for their sin to be credited. Secondly, in the atonement by Jesus' death. And then thirdly, justification, whereby we are now not only lost, if you like, our sin and the penalty of it, we have now gained the righteousness of Christ. This is amazing. This is amazing. And those are... The features and advantages. Now let's look lastly at the benefits. The benefits of imputation. As we draw this little short study to a close, I do not want you to walk away intellectually stimulated alone. This has to have a bearing. This has to do something for us as Christians. It is not okay for us to go away and say, well, that was a really nice little summary of imputation. I appreciated perhaps how that was done, or maybe I didn't. It's not sufficient for us to walk out these doors and say, okay, that was interesting. That's not okay. Because this is life changing. This is discipleship making. This is conforming to the character of God. This changes everything. And if we can walk out of here unchanged by this truth, something is wrong. Something's going wrong. Perhaps it's the communication of the preacher, but more, more than likely it is because something has not occurred in our heart because this is at the core of the gospel. So let's look at this benefit now. What does it do? This is a question. What does this truth do for me? 
How do I practically apply this truth today, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, for the rest of my life? How do I apply it? I've got a few applications, specific ones. You make your own, but here's five before we close. Number one, understanding the imputation of Adam's sin to all of mankind will result in praise toward God for rescuing us from that guilty state. Say that again. Understanding original sin, the imputation of sin to every one of us, Understanding that truth will in us as Christians result in praise because now we know what we were saved from. This is what Paul says when we go to 1 Corinthians and chapter 6, which I'll have you do real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, place we need to return to very often, lest we become proud, lest we think we've done something by ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We say, oh, ouch, Paul. That's pretty heavy. Wow, you're really hitting it hard. And then I love what he says in the next verse. Just in case you suddenly were condescending towards others, he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Lest you think for one moment, I'm not that bad. Such were some of you. Now, some of us say, like I can in my own life, in my own testimony, but I haven't done most of the things in that list. I was too young. But you don't realize you were saved from them still. You were saved from them still. You may have been saved as a young person, but had God not rescued you by his sovereign grace, you could well be that. You would be that. Every one of us left to our own selves is depraved in every category and we go further and further and further from God. Some of us have testimonies of being saved as an adult, 30 or 40 years of age. And you look at that list and you say, yeah. Such was I. John Newton says, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You look at his life and we say, yeah, you know what? That list, that covers pretty much all that you did, John Newton. And yet he says, I was lost, but then he found me. I was blind and now I see. We need to remember this original sin. What does it do for me every day? I look at the world around me and I think, what is going on? Look at our politics. Look at the problems in the world. today, And we say, but the grace of God has rescued me. Therefore, my, my lips are filled with praise towards God. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's done. He's changed me. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, I'm a new creation now. I'm a brand new creation. The old is gone. Everything is new. I have the nature of God. All things have been given unto me that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called me to glory and virtue. Amazing. You say, how do I live out that practicality? Look at the world. Look at yourself. Look at your heart and say, praise be to God. He changed me. Wow. He changed me. Number two. Understanding the full gamut of our sin. 
and understanding that it was imputed to Christ means that we can never come under divine condemnation again. Understanding that the full gamut of our sin was imputed to Christ means that we can never come under divine condemnation again. Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The wrath of God was appeased in the person of Jesus Christ. God's wrath is entirely extinguished for his elect. You can never, you can never, there is nothing that you can do that will ever stop that. There is no sin you can commit today that will ever place you back under the divine condemnation of God. And lest you be foolish about this, Paul writes in Romans 6, Well, therefore shall I sin that grace may abound? God forbid! As if we would do that. As if we would actively and intentionally sin now because we say it's all good. We've got a fire escape. God's taken care of sin. God forbid. The strongest Greek language in the whole Bible used in that verse. God forbid. But it's so important for us as Christians. Sometimes we, we get a bit of a, a problem with our thinking. And oh, God, God couldn't forgive that. You don't know what I've done. God couldn't. Oh, seriously, I, I, people come to me and they say, you, you, but pastor, you don't understand. You don't understand what I've done. You don't understand what I'm struggling with. You don't understand the addictions of my heart. My, my, my. I don't understand all of that. I may not. I understand my own heart to some degree, and I understand it's wicked and sinful, but this I know, there is now no condemnation. Never again. Never will you be called guilty again. So when the devil hurls his attacks on us, when he slanders the brethren, when he accuses the brethren, you can say with absolute certainty, there is now no condemnation. None. Incredible truth. Number three, and I better get a move on, otherwise we'll miss lunch. Understanding that our sin has been credited to Christ means that our forgiveness and salvation is permanent. We cannot ever come out from under that covering. 1 John 1.7, we won't turn for sake of time. Let me just tell you what it says. In the Greek, this is present continuous. This is what it says. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We're wrong when we say to people, the blood of Christ has cleansed us. It's technically theologically incorrect because it is a present continuous reality. It's not, it did it now. What's going to happen from here on? Yo, I got saved on, on May 28, 1989 and everything before then was covered. That's not how it works. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. Present, continuous, everything you do today, everything you do tomorrow, past, present and future, it's all covered by the blood. The forgiveness is permanent. So that when I come and I say to the Lord, Lord, forgive me again, the Bible already says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just 
It's just for him to do it. It's just because we're already declared righteous in every sense. So many more things I could say on that. Number four. Understanding that the righteousness or perfection of Christ is credited to me means that I should never doubt my position in the family of God. Just write these down. We don't have time. Galatians 3.26. Romans 8. No, I've got to turn to Romans 8. I'm already here. Romans 8.14-19. I've got to read you this. Romans 8.14-19. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Did you know the amazing truth of this imputation is that you are not, it doesn't go like a hierarchy, it's not like this, it's not like God the Father, God the Son, and then the children of God. You know how this goes? It goes, God the Father, we understand he's the one who is the author of all of this, but the Son is our brother. We are heirs according to the promise of Christ. God sees us as he sees his son. God loves us like he loves his son. If you doubt the love of God, then you must doubt the love of Christ because it's all interconnected. These things are all true. We are heirs of this promise. We call him Abba Father, Daddy, adopted, never to be changed. We changed kingdoms at the moment of salvation. An incredible truth. We were children of the devil. Now we're children of God. Never again to change positions. In the family of God, perpetually and eternally. Amazing. Number five. Got to close. Number five. Understanding that the righteousness or perfection of Christ is credited to me means that I can be assured of his divine favor despite my battles with sin. These are all interconnected and some of them perhaps could all be one point. But let me just close with reading 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Again, understanding the righteousness or perfection of Christ that is credited, that's given to me, I can be assured of his divine favor despite my battles with sin. 1 John 2, John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. You don't have to sin now. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation. I'm not going to tell you what that word means yet. That's in a couple of more months. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here's the reality. We don't have to sin, but when we do sin, we have an advocate. And the advocate stands, if you like, in my mind's eye in the, in the throne room of heaven and, and says, not guilty. Not guilty. Daniel, Chris, not guilty. I already redeemed him. My blood is already cleansing him, present, continuous from his sin. I am advocating for him. He is clothed in my righteousness. The divine favor of God is upon us despite our battles with sin. Oh, that's so encouraging because I'm so prone to sin. 
I'm so prone and erring towards that. My natural inclination is to disobey and dishonor the Lord. There are so many other applications we could make, and I think you know that. But time is up. Before we take our communion, I want to read you the lines of some old hymns. And I hope this really, really impacts your heart. I'd never read this one before. By a man called Nicholas von Zinzendorf. That's probably why I can't remember his name. 1706, this is what he wrote. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds, in these arrayed with joy, shall I lift my head. This spotless robe, the same appears when ruined nature sinks in years. No age can change its glorious hue. The robe of Christ is ever new. I burst into tears when I read that last night. Edward Mote, you know this, in 1797 in his hymn says, When he shall come with trumpet sound, Oh, may I then in him be found, Dressed in his righteousness alone, Faultless to stand before the throne. Charles Wesley, we know this too, says, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Horatius Bonar, by the way, this is why we sing hymns. In case anybody wonders, this is why we sing hymns. You can't get that today in most modern songs. Horatius Bonar says, Thy righteousness, O Christ, alone can cover me. No righteousness avails save that which is of thee. And then August Top Lady in 1776, we know this very well. But listen to the words. Don't sing it in your mind. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide. Myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Double? Why double? Well, here's why. Save from wrath my sin gone and make me pure. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us. What an incredible thought, church. I hope that today as we partake of communion, we're able to say, thank you, Lord. For taking my sin. Thank you, Lord, for giving me your righteousness. Imputation. Lord, thank you for what we have just looked at. It is a, it's an awesome, an awesome thought that we could ever stand before the judge of all the earth and have a right standing before him. The one who sees every deed every motive of our heart. The omniscient eye. Lord, we are amazed this morning. We're amazed that you would care for wretched sinners such as us. And not just care, but go so far as to provide a plan of salvation. Lord, may we live up to that which you've called us to, your glory, your praise. You have chosen us before the foundation of the world for this purpose, to the praise of your glorious grace. 
Lord, we look at the world around us and we see the effect of Adam's sin. In ourselves, in the world, the whole of creation groans under the weight of sin. And yet we look at Christ. And we look at the fact that he would take our sin and credit us with his righteousness. Oh God, what a message. As we partake in a few moments, oh Lord, may we do so filled with praise, filled with awe, filled with wonder at the power of the cross. That you would redeem us, that you'd set us free, that you'd give us hope and a home in heaven in your presence for all eternity. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name.